Hello and welcome back to Doctor the Future, your podcast place for pertinent picks of what's coming to affect you, the physician. I'm Dr. Lane Aina, family medicine physician in Huntsville, Texas. We are continuing our talks on value-based care with part two with Dr. Sherry Aniego. Today we're discussing again non-medical drivers of health. As a reminder, Dr. Aniego is a family medicine physician in Houston, Texas, an expert in healthcare equity and public health. Dr. Aniego served as the Division Director and Public Health Authority in Harris County, Texas, and currently works with Equality Health, a population health company that utilizes a whole-person care model to advance value-based care and independent networks for diverse populations. So let's jump back into our conversation with Dr. Aniego. What have you seen in organized medicine as far as a push for education, a push for the transition uh, towards the this utilization and learning about the non-medical drivers of health? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, I'm seeing it play out at multiple levels. I mean, when we see our professional organizations, um, not only at the state level, but certainly at the national level, they're, they're, they're really um, being very vocal about um, the importance of this issue because they know that in order for our patients and our communities to be healthier, to have better outcomes, we have to address this issue. I mean, I think case in point, you can see even with the American Medical Association, they've been very um, clear even in their framework as well about addressing these non-medical drivers and providing um, the, the clinicians um, in the communities with the, with the resources to be able to do that work. Um, TMA has been very vocal on the issue as well. I mean, I think that we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, we're seeing some of this um, play out itself in a number of the um, uh, sort of positions that we're seeing created. Um, we're seeing task force that uh, that we didn't necessarily have in, in committees, you know, looking at inclusivity, right? We're looking at equity, we're looking at diversity. And because I think that we know the importance of addressing and looking at things from a lens uh, from that lens, that's how we can really deliver the best the best care. So I'm certainly seeing uh, from an organized med medicine perspective, just this play out in a number of the professional organizations, um, as well as obviously with the private sector as well. You see you see a, a big initiative um, with with that work as well. Sure, sure. So back to the codes. Um, one thing that you'd mentioned when we were kind of emailing and preparing for the episode were Z codes. And, mm -hmm. and this is a genuine question from me. What are Z codes? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think Z, it, it's important for the, for your listeners to, to that, who may already be capturing this information, but it's essentially those ICD-10 encounter codes. Okay. Um, that really are used to document those non-medical drivers. So it's housing, you know, uh, patients experiencing house, um, you know, homelessness, it's um, food insecurity, it's transportation. And they're typically, you know, ranked from Z55 to Z65. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, you know, like I was mentioning, that's really how the MCOs can really, you know, get a get an understanding of how complex your popular your patient population is because if you're not capturing and documenting that information no you know it's hard to justify that you're doing the work if it's not documented sure. right sure. and so um you know i think that we have to you know we have to continue to advocate for providers to get the necessary resources to know about those codes um you know, more and more electronic health records have that capability built in to be able to capture and pull that down. 
Um, and certainly, obviously, we know that there's some, if, the, if, if not, there's, you know, it's because this is such a huge issue that, you know, systems are catching up to that. And so upgrades are able to, to capture that as well. Um, but yeah, I think that it, it, the most important thing that I can say about it is that you have to be able to, to, to document that type of data to really tell your story, to tell your patient's story through the claims. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, it, it again, when you're talking about value-based care or e any of these alternative payment models, capturing the level of complexity is important, yep. right? Absolutely. And so non-medical drivers, um, you know, it's, it's just as an important factor. I mean, I think that we are still doing a lot of advocacy in terms of the reimbursement of that. And I think that that's, to, that's more to come. I think that that's mm. the biggest concern that most uh, clinicians will sort of face is about the reimbursement of it all. You know, I'm taking this on, but I'm, you know, the reimbursement parity is not equal, but I think that a lot of that is forthcoming and evolving. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like they taught us in med school, if it, you didn't document it, it didn't happen. That's <laughs> so. That um, this is going to be a big, broad answer, but what would you say that, and we can break it down appropriately. Yeah what would you say physicians can do in their day-to-day -day practice to impact the non-medical drivers of health? Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's multiple, multiple layers, right? I think it's one is if they have the capacity to do this on their own, uh, you know, and they have the, the structures in place, I think it's just, you know, making sure that you've refined your process um, to be able to capture, to capture it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But if, you know, if you're talking about doing it de novo, creating it, you know, on your own, um, that can be very daunting. And I think, you know, I think providers have to sort of ask themselves, do they want to hitch their wagon onto something bigger to be able to help them to do that work? And whether that's going it, going it with an ACO or, uh, you know, an, an aggregator, if you will. Um, I think that that's a decision left up to, you know, uh, the practice. Um, but at, you know, I think the first thing is to collect the, the you know, in, aside from collecting the, the, the non-medical driver's data, I think look at what you have at your disposal in your community, right? Your mm -hmm. community partners, your community-based resources, you know, because you're gonna, you know, physicians have to be able to build a referral network to be able to, to do this work because, you know, you can collect, as we talked about, collect and screen, but if, you don't have anywhere to send a patient and you don't know what happened when you sent the patient somewhere, um, you know, you're kind of operating in a vacuum as well. So mm -hmm. I think those are really important. So collecting the information through some sort of screening process, whether that, and there are a number of evidence-based screening tools that are out there. I mean, I'm happy to, to share that information with you, but there's, um, you know, AFP has a screening tool. Um, you know, a lot of these screening tools can be embedded into the EHR. I think the daunting thing is when you do some of these evidence-based um, screening tools right now, they may be lengthy, right? Mm -hmm. They may sure. contain 10, 11, 12, 20, up to 20 questions. And they're touching on so many different levels of you know these non-medical drivers it and if you don't have the infrastructure or a referral network to address all of those needs if your patients have all of those limitations or barriers then you know i think that that sort of is a is a game it's a it's a it stops right there for just a, a lot of you know 
you know, physicians just right there. And so, um, you know, I've seen it where some practices or some clinicians will just implement one thing, you know, and that's really because they have a partnership. They, they were able to get seed funding to, to do a, you know, to do a screening process to just, to just address food insecurity. Right. And so if that's what it is, then, then I, I would say go for what it's, it's going to, you know, work for your workflow, the, the best way. Right. So that's the first thing, collecting it, um, whatever screening tool and however, you know, whether that's a comprehensive one or whether that's an abbreviated one, documenting it. We've already talked about the importance mm -hmm. of documenting it and telling the story um, and then just mapping it out. Right. Mapping that data out to um, to those Z codes. And so, um, like I was saying that, you know, you mentioned that you didn't go to medical school to be a coder, <laughs> but it is certainly important to assign those uh, those appropriate Z codes um, to the to the appropriate data um, sure. that, that, that's tracking that patient so that you can really, um, really speak to that. And I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm also sort of hitting at with that is that there are a number of uh, socioeconomic needs of the patient populations that we can just capture by just mapping out where the what those Z codes are just by geography. And so we know that our patients are coming from certain communities or certain neighborhoods and we can we can really act on on a lot of that data just at a at a at a census track level um, at a zip code level and that's essentially and that's almost like we we're saying like predictive um, sort of uh, data or geospatial data to kind of tell us a lot about um, some of the needs of the community from which the patients come from so that's another really good thing about Z, uh, Z codes because you can just map it out. Uh, from a geo geographical perspective. And I think the, the last couple of things that I'll say about it is um, when we're able to use the Z code data, that really helps us to really improve overall quality of care, right? Okay. Uh, and it helps us to really be able to connect that patient to those appropriate resources to help them have a better outcome. So whether it's addressing a food insecurity issue, whether it's addressing housing, it again, it's playing into their physical health and their mental health and ultimately better outcomes for the patients. And again, um, I know that this is also a big concern of providers though. It's like, you know, being responsible for, for where that referral goes, if that referral gets closed, how long that, you know, did the did my referral partner do what they were supposed to do? Did they even get the referral? So there's a lot of nuances built into that. And so I think that, uh, that you know, one of the big issues that, you know, is in, embedded in that process is this whole issue of inter interoperability, mm -hmm. like having those data systems communicate. I mean, you know, my EMR is not going to connect or communicate with my local food bank's EM, uh, you know, electronic system, but there are, you know, intermediaries that can sort of fill the gap. And so, but, you know, I think really sort of having some sort of capabilities to, to do that, um, to do some of that work is going to really be important to, to make it be an efficient process. And I think that that's, again, further evolving as mm -hmm. we continue to do this work. Um, and then lastly, I would just say report on, report on it, right? Sure. You know, when providers decide to do this work or take this work on, being able to tell the story 
is so important. Um, you know, you're not only telling the story and you're coding to your MCO partners, but if you're telling the story also to other external stakeholders about the complexities and about the needs of your of your of your patient population, I think that opens up the door for for providers to be able to um, to leverage and utilize um, opportunities. Um, take advantage of, a, of, of funding opportunities, right? To be able mm -hmm. to build in a model to support, you know, to, to build out their own care team, to, to have their own community health worker or, or, or um, service linkage worker within their workflow, because you're able to share your story of the, the, the complex needs that you're taking care of on a day in and day out basis. Very cool. Yeah. One of the things um, that you'd mentioned in there that I wanted to pull out and really expand upon Mm -hmm. is um, you referenced the difficulty getting started from, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a de novo point and, and especially mm -hmm. kind of uh, alluded to smaller practices. Um, one point that you made that I thought was fantastic was pick one, pick one and go with it, you know, yeah. pick, pick something. But the, the most common response I get when I have discussions about this with physicians is, I know this is an issue, but I have no idea where to address it. And I, I have no idea how to start to address it. What is one or two simple things that are, or what are one or two simple things that our listeners could do to start to address this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we're doing right now is, you know, clearly education awareness of sure. the issue and tying it back to the reason why your patients need it, right? Mm -hmm. I think just um, reinforcing and, you know, just uh, underscoring the importance of why this is an important thing to to address and to to meet the needs for and i think that one other thing too to re to emphasize to um to your listeners is that they don't have to do it alone i think that you know it's so important to train up your your teams right uh this right. is something that really the entire practice should approach as something that they all can do and participate in at some level so whether it, whether you decide to implement a one question or a two question um, screening process at the front desk or at checkout, everybody has to buy into it. And so I think that, you know, the onus shouldn't necessarily weigh on the shoulders of the of just the clinician, but having that buy in from, you know, from top all the way to, to the, you know, to, you know, from, from all levels is really key. And that's where we've seen, you know, quite a bit of success. And even with, you know, sort of the, 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 the larger practices as well. I mean, I think that, you know, when you talk about, you talk about this to administrators, right? I mean, they get it. And then the last thing is that a physician wants is to have an initiative roll out and they weren't talked about, they weren't talked to about it. That, that also creates inertia and frustration. And so, and, you know, again, it's the same type of model. It's the same thing about communication, getting buy-in from every internal stakeholder, whether it's a small practice or a large practice alike. Um, I think that those are, you know, the two things that I would say. Education and awareness, which is what we're doing now, tying it back to the reason why. What's your why? You know, mm -hmm. you want to move the needle. You want to make sure your patients have great outcomes. And then, again, just reinforcing the importance of, Getting getting stakeholder buy-in from the entire team to be able to in, in, implement a process that's going to work for you because not everyone's process will work for your practice. Sure, absolutely. Um, what do you say to small practices and solo practices and little rural practices like <laughs> ours that that hear this and and appreciate how good of an idea it is and yeah. then remember what I do every day and how that might be a little difficult? 
Yeah. Uh, what, what would your advice be? Yeah, like I said, don't go it alone. I think that if, if it's something that you want to create de novo, look at what's out there. Look look at opportunities for you to um, you know capture what you're what you're able, able to capture on. If you're you're able to do the appropriate documenting with the Z codes, if you need additional resources for Z codes, seek those resources out. I mean, the MCOs have a lot of resources available. Um, you know, you have your aggregator um, entities like Equality who, who are around to really be able to help um, some of these practices be successful. And so I think it's really making those kinds of decisions to just, uh, you know, to be able to, to determine where you want to where you want to uh, sort of be on that continuum. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that's that's tough about this is it's you can't do a large double blinded study that I can think of on on population based non-medical drivers of health. Is there data out there for this as difficult as that would be to derive? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, it is very difficult to what you're to your point to do a, a, a study to that degree. Right. But what we continue to see is that, um, you know, we see that if we address these issues and, you know, and we can determine and we can basically address the issue of are these effective? Right. Mm -hmm. Are they are they um, are they are they really moving the needle to really improve outcomes? And I think that what we've been able to see, you know, really study after study, um, the literature tells us that you know these are unmet these unmet social needs are clearly linked with poor outcomes. And, and so I think that um, you know we're continuing to see that. I think that when we you look at other data sets that also can help clinicians, um, you know, there's things like, you know, what sticks out in my mind are things like the social vulnerability index. And that's looking at really sort of those, you know, drill down census tracts areas that talks about, you know, how resilient communities are, you know, whether they've been impacted by um, some sort of natural disaster, whether they're, uh, how, how well they respond to outbreaks of, you know, viruses like COVID-19. Um, and so, you know, obviously uh, those data sets are really impactful um, and they, again, tie into these non-medical drivers. Um, you know, CDC has a, a number of other data sets that they've also been able to, to, to make available um, for clinicians as well. I mean, there's, you know, the other one that sticks out in my mind is the chronic disease indicators mm -hmm. as well. Um, that really helps us to um, that helps public health um, clinic practitioners as well as policymakers get a really good idea about some of these chronic disease um, uh, as well as the risk factors that put people in, in, you know, at a higher risk for some of these chronic diseases. But what are some of those conditions that impact the chronic disease? And a lot of those are those non-medical drivers. And so um, I'll say that in terms of um, whether or not these uh, the effectiveness at a large scale has been done, I, I can't pull out one or two specific studies that looks at like a, a double blind study at them. But I can say that in terms of the research and the literature that's out there now, we continue to make the link between, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that these non-medical drivers are directly tied to to outcomes. And, um, you know, I think that it's encouraging to see that a number of our professional organizations, as well as the public and private sector, are really um, 
standing, you know, really coming to the to the forefront to to really make this a part of their work as well. Yeah, with the professional organizations, I know you're too humble to mention it, but you are a leader in the Texas Academy of Family Physicians <laughs> um, and someone that people look to in this subject. Are you seeing more buy-in from other healthcare leaders towards this uh, concept? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I think that hearing um, hearing what's happening at the at the state level, obviously, is just a direct reflection of what's happening at the federal level. Um, you know, I, I'll also mention that I, I'm humble uh, to serve, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at the TAFP. Um, it's it's uh, it, it's definitely something that I don't take uh, lightly and I'm very appreciative of the opportunities. Um, a couple of years ago, they um, put my name forth to also serve on the Maternal Morbidity and Mortality Review Committee for the state. Wow. And so, you know, a, a, you know, you know, it's it's gratifying work, but it's very hard work because you're um, having to sort of review the cases of these women who've died um, immediately after childbirth, or at least up to you know one year after. And we look at what we what we call community vital signs and you know, that's housing, that's access to care, um, that's crime. I mean, it's all of these issues that impact um, a woman during during pregnancy and immediately after childbirth that ultimately impact a death or a, a loss of life. And so I think that, you know, they, it, it's just been really, um, I think that so many, um, you know, organizations and agencies and, and entities are really now um, doing meaningful work to really um, try to bring attention to the issue. And I think that that's why clinicians now are seeing, you know, some of the impact from, you know, coming from coming from the payers, from, from the payer side, um, because they can't do the work alone either. Uh, it's, right. you know, ultimately um, it's, a, it's a collective um, effort in terms of how we can address this. So I don't know about you, but after I hear a podcast like this or I go to a conference, I'm always jazzed up for about two <laughs> days, right? You, you got about two days to, to really get started or then life yeah. kind of gets in the way. You got your kids, you got your, right. you know, your family and your work. So I like to end these with a, a couple of actionable items yeah. for our listeners, albeit they could be repetitive, but just in summary, mm -hmm. After hearing all of this, how can our listeners start preparing for this? Uh, and and do you have any uh, favorite resources if they want to go build upon their knowledge for this? Yeah, yeah. Like I was saying, I think that um, you know, like I said, if they, you know, if, if providers want to do this alone, I think obviously look at some of the evidence based um, screening tools that are out there. I mean, the AAFP has um, has one, uh, you know, again, in terms of how this links into EHRs, that's a different question. That's a, you know, I think that's probably just dependent upon the system that you're using. But, sure. you know, um, hatch on to, you know, one of these evidence based tools to, to allow you to do the work and and, you know, again, abbreviate it and customize it to what works for your practice um, and not be overwhelmed by it. And I think also, you know, looking at opportunities to to do this work, if you have a team based approach already in place, 
um, then that's great. I mean, because you're already like one step, you know, uh, you know, ahead of the process to be successful just in value based care. And especially as it relates to addressing the non-medical drivers, because that team based approach is so critical um, to be uh, successful. Um, you know, obviously having some sort of supports to do care coordination and some practices don't necessarily have that. And so I think that's where I was talking about if practices want to decide to hitch their wagon onto something bigger to be able to help them drive that type of success and bring those types of services in without them making that upfront financial investment. That's also um, a way to be able to, to move the needle as it relates to this as well. Fantastic. Dr. Anigo, I know I learned a ton. Uh, I'm confident that all of our <laughs> listeners learned a ton. I'd love to have you back on one of these days, but Absolutely. thank you so much for being on. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This was great. Yes, ma'am. Well, you take care. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us on Doc to the Future. If you enjoyed the show, please consider liking, subscribing, and leaving a comment on the show to help others find it. And consider telling a friend or two about the show. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Lane Aina. That's D-R Lane Aina. Join us next episode as we're joined by Aaron Camp and Art Cavazos, two attorneys from the podcast Future Ready Business that are going to talk to us about hanging your shingle and starting your own practice. And remember, practice in the present, but prepare for the future.